we are here in the very east of uh, Berlin, uh, facing uh, the Deutsch-Russisches Museum. And somewhere else, it must be written also in Kyrillic. And uh, we are about to enter and we will uh, tell you what this is all about. Uh, I'm here with uh, Jason Honey and uh, Adrian Shepard doing the sounds and the pictures. And this is, of course, one edition of the Radio On Historic. And if the microphone is strong enough, it will pick up the tick-tick of the course against the flagpoles with from right to left something that you won't see uh, too much unless it will be uh, shown at the Olympic Games. From, <laughs> from right to left you see the Ukrainian flag, the Belarusian flag and the Russian flag and the German flag. It almost looks like an upcoming peace conference. As the Red Army uh, surrounded and started fighting its way into the center of Berlin, this building was used by Marshal Zhukov yeah, of the first Belarusian army um, as his main headquarters. This is also where the instrument of unconditional surrender was signed on May 8th of 1945. It is actually the final ex exhibit in this museum, German Russian Museum, basically documenting the German Soviet war from 1941 to 1945. And as we stand here behind this white fence, behind this white gate, as you mentioned, these panels that we can see here in front of us are part of a Dauer Ausstellung, Dimensions of a Crime, Soviet Prisoners of War in World War II. So uh, I guess we'll be taking in a little bit of all of this. Yeah. And this, you guys, this is the room where on May 8th of 1945, the unconditional surrender was signed. And my knees are knocking and I'm shaking. Yeah? Now what's really interesting about this, you guys, is check out this detail. All the divots in the parquet floor from the hobnailed boots. The what? Hobnailed boots, the old military boots with the leather soles. Okay. The Crazy, huh? Whoa. Yeah. So here, I guess this is where Zhukov would have been sitting. This is where Tedder would have been sitting. This is where Spatz would have been sitting. And over here is where De Tavernier would have been sitting. Okay. And uh, I guess Keitel and Strumpf and Friedenburg would have been sitting here. Well, you've got the order here. That's the pictures. Yeah. And here we have copies of the formal declaration, capitulation. Okay, the thing is, is that the, um, I think for whatever reason, the Soviets had some beef regarding how many parties were actually going to sign the actual capitulation document. If I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong about this, but for this reason, the Americans were going to not be one of the official Allied signees, rather they were going to be a witness, okay, as well as the French. So the, I'm not quite sure how to phrase this, the three parties that officially signed the document were the Soviets under Marshal Zhukov, right here, okay, Keitel for the Germans, and if I'm not mistaken, Air Marshal Terror from the RAF. 
representing the English. Um, Carl Spatz, the USAAF commander, was the American representative here. And the French representative was de Tagnesi. I could be completely butchering that. De Tagnesi, de Tagnesi. Another important thing, this was only going to be in English. The document was only going to be in English and Russian uh, and German. No French. Can you see, this is his name right there. Uh, General, and she, oh, he can't read it. It's only a no. signature. Okay. Are these the actual, these are facsimiles, but these are the actual surrender documents? In fact, they uh, designed this thing with uh, pen and ink. <laughs> Because here there's a set to uh, lay down the pencil and what the little holders for the ink. And yeah. everyone had something so they could drip the, the, the pen in yeah. it. And then, so it was not like ballpoint that they got at, this, at, the, at the entrance. And really, you've got your big pen. And, uh, and look how big that ashtray was. And look at those microphones, huh? Yeah, the ashtrays, because they all smoke cigars. Yeah. But you know, um, you know something about uh, microphones. There is a microphone, the other microphone oh. also there. They, they almost, almost look like hand grenades or something. A uh, little bit. <laughs> something lethal that you throw at someone and you uh, hit them. Do you think there was water in those crystal containers or was there something else? Do, do you think they had some uh, a, a little uh, festivity that they ate together after they've signed it and now we drink? They must have. Um, the initial, okay, the initial instrument of surrender, or I should maybe say a instrument of surrender that was signed, was signed on May 7th in Reims, okay, yeah, in France. excuse my French, uh, it was signed by Jodl of the OKH, Oberkommando des Heers. Friedeborg was also there. I am not sure who representing the Allies was there, but that was the initial, okay. There was something about May 5th, there was something about May 5th as well too, but I'm not really quite clear on what that one was. But anyway, May 7th was the initial instrument of surrender that was signed. The Russians found that not cool, okay? Um, they felt that the document should be signed not on lands that the Nazis had actually conquered and occupied, but rather at that place where the orders had come from namely Berlin. Yeah, formalistic okay. spoken, it's much more better, better. Right, so that's why on May 8th, it was signed here at almost midnight. It was almost midnight when that was signed, okay? And for that reason, that's why the Soviets, and I believe also in Israel, they celebrate victory in Europe on May 9th. We celebrate it, however, May 8th, yeah? <clears throat> but this with the divots, this gives me chills, man. There's Admiral Freiburg with your adjutants. Uh, is it Tempelhof? Do we recognize something? We don't recognize. Yeah, that's Neukölln in the background, isn't it? Looking over the latest draft of documents. Military parade, there come the Russians, the Soviets. Tedder. Is that Neukölln back there? I mean, what airport could it be? Uh, okay, look, I know what you said. Is that the Oberbaum? That is. That is, so they came from Tempelhof. Wow, yeah. crazy. Okay, those are the, there's Keitel. That's the little lounge, I guess. They're all smoking. They seem, seem somewhat informal. Keitel, chewing his nails. Yeah, they're in the waiting room, so waiting okay, for the other ones the to arrive. So. Here come the French. They enter the house where we are now. And the Germans enter as well. 
at the end. There's the room that we are now in. Check it out. Yeah. Do you Everyone's notice the chandeliers as well as the, the wall fixtures are all the same? There they are exiting through this door or that door, coming in. They'll be coming in from outside. Outside, because there's the mirrors and stuff. Hence all the hobnail divots and the parquet floor over there. Tedder, Spatz, Shukov. So where are your secret agents? Are they now all ready all to right. go and sit down? Okay, the Unterzeichnung, the signing of, Marshal Zhukov, Tedder to his left, various Soviet brass. Keitel comes in with his baton, Strumpf. Okay, now we can figure out where he Freiburg sat, right. because I think he sat at that table there, which is the most insignificant table at the right side. You see? Maybe. I think so. Ah, yes, you're yeah. right. You're right. So he, you're they, right. They made him at the right side the most insignificant table of, of the whole composition, where they sat, the, the, the four of them. You're absolutely right. They yeah. just showed, they just showed, they yeah. just, okay. So Stumpf, Keitel, and Freiburg, Freienburg is his name. I'm mispronouncing his name the entire time. God. Damn it. That's also because they, they are very close to the door. Mm -hmm. They enter and they sit and then they sign and they exit. Right. So they've got very little time and it's, it's very also a little bit uh, to, uh, to express what position they hold in the whole process. Right. So there's, there's Keitel actually signing the document. Someone looking over the shoulder a bit. The Strumpf just signed it. Friedenburg is signing it right now. Now it comes over, there's, Zhukov is about to sign it, now watch, now look at this dark-haired character, there's two standing directly, by, this one guy's looking back, standing behind his chair, Keitel, Soviet brass, looking on, here it comes, now look at the two guys hovering in yeah. the back, see them? See that guy on the right, hovering over the chair? Uh, yeah. yeah. Looking at everything? All of them observing yeah. very, and very They're all NKVD, yeah, 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 they're all to make sure everything's signed prim and proper. Mm. That they don't make Mickey Mouse draw. The Germans are being marched out. Uh, I think there was one table uh, more. One table more. Which is now over there. Okay. And the banquet. Yeah. And they left out the balalaika and the dancing. Because this is now champagne eh, on the table. Champagne it's, and wine. Right. And this would probably be about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah? So this would now be May 9th. This would now be May 9th. Uh, mm -hmm. When it's official. Right. And it was already May 9th in Moscow when this document was being signed on May 8th, yeah. just before midnight. Well, finally we can eat. Crazy. So, should we check out the rest of the museum? What it looks like? It says, from Casablanca, not Karlshorst, and Hitler being punched. From Casablanca to Karlshorst? Yeah. Casablanca was one of the big Allied um, meetings. Oh. Uh, I think prior to the invasion of Italy or just after Italy was being invaded, when it was clear that the Germans had had it, but there was still going to be some fighting, the Allies got together and began talking about a few things. Why don't we start at the beginning? What? <laughs> Why don't we start at the beginning of the exhibition? It's, it's chronological. Yeah? It starts upstairs. <clears throat> okay. So you guys, come here. I want to tell you something real quick. So. Venus, I was maybe telling you about this the other day. When I was here 20 years ago, one of the most priceless things about this place, mm -hmm. okay, is that the, ex the part of the exhibition that you visit before you go into the signing room was this combat diorama, which is really typical of the late 60s and early 70s, uh -huh. in which they have a room mocked up like a trench, 
and they've got mannequins all bloody oh, lying wow. around, and they've got the walls painted like the battle scene. And almost like the Imperial War Museum in London, they've got these audios playing of like machine gun fire and detonations and guys giving orders and yelling and crying for mom and stuff like that. But the tape, back then at least, the tape was so old, it had been rewound so much that it was all stretched out. It was going, <laughs> it was so weird, man. It was so weird. Let's just, just take the elevator, come on. Okay. We get enough exercise anyway. You got it? Hold the bed, hold the bed, hold the bed. We're there already or we have to push something? Not sure. Uh, we are on the second floor. I guess it's first stop, um, the exhibition. We are currently looking at an exhibition or a section of the exhibition regarding um, Deutsche Kriegsgefangenschaft uh, in the Soviet Union. And here we have Freies Deutschland. This would be, if I'm not mistaken, captured German soldiers who have now been, I guess according to Soviet terms, have become denazified and identify nationally as German, but are probably looking at socialism and communism a little bit differently. Okay? But I could be, I could be wrong about that. Unfortunately, I can't read anything here without um, the light on it. Well, these are all things that they got, and somebody made an engraving of a, a medieval uh, battle with uh, knights and horses on this uh, tin. So here uh, they've all been condemned to a lengthy prison sentence where they're going to be put to work. Tin can from which he ate, huh? Um, these documents basically are condemning um, a certain group of German prisoners of war or all German prisoners of war to a <clears throat> lengthy prison sentence in which they're all going to be to work. Yeah. Yeah, it was put on paper. I, uh, okay, so uh, check it out right here. Gründungsaufruf des National Committees Freies Deutschland, Lager Kragnostik, 13. Juli 1943, auf sowjetische Initiative, gründete deutsche Exilkommunisten zusammen mit Kriegsgefangenen, Wehrmachtsoldaten des National Committee Freies Deutschland. Dieses rief zum Sturz Hitlers und zur Einstellung des Kampfs an der Ostwand auf. Das Committee gab eine Zeitung heraus, betrieb einen Radiosender und verbreitete Flugblätter an der Front. Seine Wirkung aber blieb gering. Es wurde im ja. November 1945 aufgelöst. Ja, das Ding ist, sie waren Prisoners of War und wenn der Krieg endet, gab es keine Krieg, natürlich. Also sie konnten nicht Prisoners of War sein. Und dann wurden sie Judged again, and then it became all political, and they were sent to camps okay. in Siberia uh, um, for another couple. But of this years. is signed. This is marked 13th of July, 1943. So this is, as it says here. Yeah, then they were prisoners of war with mm -hmm. Stalin. A Soviet effort to consolidate um, German communists in exile with German prisoners of war to form the National Committee of Free Germany. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Central of the anti-fascist uh, movement, also this uh, organized from uh, Soviet uh, people. Yeah. What you said, the denazification the, the uh, process. Right. And that's what, <clears throat> that was visible in print with also little, uh, little booklets to instruct them and yeah. to, uh, to uh, 
Little books there to show their passport in the camps. Well, they had one liter to eat. That was not bad. <laughs> Maybe two times a day. Yeah. So basically, what, what you see here is uh, also the, the immediate post-war uh, um, history with the conferences in Yalta and Tehran. Um, <laughs> also conference in Casablanca, where uh -huh. they all met to decide how to uh, divide Europe. Right, what was going to happen. And what to do with, uh, with Germany. And in fact, the battle for Germany uh, economically went on until 1948. And then it was decided, okay, we take the West, you take the East, and we divide Berlin. Okay, this is interesting. Stalin wasn't there because the fighting at Stalingrad at that point in time was way too intense and he was needed in Russia. This well in Casablanca? Yeah. Well, he was afraid to fly. Um, but he flew to Yalta. He flew to a bunch of other Yalta? places. Yeah. But that's in Russia. No, it's in Iran. Yalta is not in the Krim? No, it, um, hold on. There was the Tehran conference. There yeah. was a conference in Tehran. He flew to that. Oh, he didn't take the train? I don't think so, no. I believe he uh. flew. But anyway, it says here, the point of the Casablanca conference from 14th to 26th of January 1943 was to set as a goal the absolute unconditional surrender of Germany as well as to intensify the Allied, the Western Allied air war effort against German cities and production facilities. Well, you also see things here, booklets and uh, ammonia ampoules and uh, very little uh, kitchen to, uh, to make your own sausages. Pork lunch. No, it's a, it's a model. In fact, uh, <laughs> it looks like a wagon or, or, or a container on, uh, on feet with a little uh, chimney. And then they put a complete pork in it, I think, and then mm -hmm. that's what they eat. But it's got a very much uh, a flea market feel to it. Whoa, and this is something for Jason with all these guns. Well, this is impressive. I'm looking at a... That's a Papashov. What is this? This, this is it's a... a Soviet submachine gun. It's a Papashov. This is not a Kalashnikov. No, this is called a Papashov. Oh, the Papashov. Yeah, and actually, it still pops up in military service again and again. All right, in small numbers. But I know that when... Um, the U.S. Army was fighting in, um, in northeastern Iraq. U.S. armed forces were still encountering guys using these. Mosul. Okay. Mosul. And U.S. Marines were reporting that they were still encountering yeah. dudes fighting them with Papashovs. And Anthony Quinn, of course, leading the resistance. Yeah. I forget how many uh, rounds it shot 9 mil. Or didn't you know? It shot, what is it? Oh, boy. They and shot then you got the wounded, Soviet. and then this guy came to you with all these scissors and yeah. things to cut you. Exactly. And to anesthetize you. Ooh. Well, upstairs there's a, a darker room, lots of uh, images uh, from the war. Ah. Civilians and, uh, and military. Things on display like uh, guns and... Uh, um, the doctor's uh, 
back with uh, the contents of it. Also envelopes, uh, medallions, posters, propaganda yeah. posters, all in this uh, classical uh, Lini Riefenstahl. Uh, what, what's, what's the other guy? Uh, Sergei Eisenstein uh, optics. Those were. Orson Welles also used this uh, kind of optic from, uh, to get his heroic uh, poses. And all uh, the Soviets, uh, they're just friendly people. Also on display okay. things in Russian that I can't understand, but it's filled in with names, so there must be... Oh, Totenscheine. Do you hear so, that ticking? Okay, this was a, an element, so to speak, or an aspect of the Soviet propaganda war against the German forces. Yeah? Basically what they would do using massive, massive loudspeakers is they would amplify the sound of a clock ticking. Oh. And then as we heard here a second ago, some man yelling. And basically he would be yelling across the lines to the Germans, saying a number of things. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that he would repeat over and over again is every second a German soldier dies in Russia. Uh -huh. Every second, a German soldier dies in Russia. Yeah, stuff like, stuff like this. Mm -hmm. um, it might explain some of that here. D this was during the blockade of Leningrad. And of course, that's the name of Shostakovich. Maybe it's his uh, metronome. No, his uh, seventh symphony was uh, dedicated to, uh, to the siege of uh, Dedicated the symphony to his home city, Leningrad, where it was uh, presented on the 9th of August, the corner after performances in Khrushchev, where he and his family had been evacuated. Um, they also said that they used this on local radio in Leningrad. When the tap was faster, truck, 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 it meant there was an air raid coming. Uh-huh. Okay, so that everyone could take shelter. And then when it finally slowed down, it meant that the that the Luftwaffe planes were, had already, I guess, hit the target and were now on the way home. But also this uh, kind of uh, announcement of whatever they want to say. Oh no, it's Shostakovich, you see, uh, the concert uh, of Symphonieczkogo uh, Orchestra Elias Werk, Elias Werk, Shostakovich, and uh, the set, set by a symphony. So okay. that's the announcement of that symphony on the 15th of uh, August in 1942 in, uh, in Leningrad. But I did this, but you see the typo typography from the, oh, they used different ones. Yeah. The names are different, the, 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 the bold is different. And I don't know if this is beautiful or not, but it's... Uh, I think it's beautiful. It's, it's very functional, form mm -hmm. before function. Okay, um, I might have been jumping to conclusions about the, the Soviet propaganda effort using, in this case, this metronome or this clock ticking, okay? What it seemed to say here is that the clock ticking or the metronome, when the tact was sped up, announced an incoming air raid. And once the air raid was by, to use a German term, then it would go back to this, which meant it was safe. However, I do know that on many fronts, they did use the sound of a clock ticking, and they would broadcast this over in a propaganda effort to terrify the Germans, yeah, with the announcement, every second a German soldier dies in Russia. Wow.
Yeah, those megaphones were very present. Eh? It was also uh, after the war in Berlin, and even during uh, the, when, when the war was here, that and the Americans and the English and, and the Russians, they, they went around with little cars with big megaphones on, the, on top of it, yeah. just to shout out their, uh, their propaganda and their messages. This is the announcement of the war, right? That the Germans are invading. All these young guys, yeah. within the first they year, just completely gone. They know they had to fight. Yeah, just completely gone. It's the voice of uh, Molotov, by the way, that you hear. Molotov being uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs at that time. Well, all these rooms are with black and light uh, images. Scriptures, images again of uh, the devastations of the war, people yeah. flying, people bending over dead bodies, uh, streets packed with fugitives, burning houses, derailed uh, trains, you name it. Yeah. Station of Kiev where people are waiting to uh, get on the train. Uh. Well, just as they are waiting right now, if they should go on the train or not. Pictures of people being hanged, yeah. being captured, captured by, by the German uh, Wehrmacht, uh, Roma kids being photographed as if they were uh, criminals, but of course this, this is more like uh, measuring uh, their uh, skulls. <laughs> Here's a three-minute segment of uh, Himmler's October 43 Posna uh, speech in which he addressed a significant body of SS officers and basically addressed the, the mass killing of Jews, it being their moral right and the fact that they remain civilized in doing it. Huh. It seems you can see forced labor, uh, getting food uh, on, 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 on the countryside, the fight against the partisans, the murder of uh, civil uh, prisoners and uh, Roma and patients, killings, plunder, battles, ghettos, killing of Jews, occupation and the people and all everywhere there are dead bodies and people being hanged. And here is a diagram illustrating Satzungsverwaltung, basically showing the different German administrative districts. Here we have the General Government, of course where the death camps were, where the death facilities were, the Reichskommissariat Ukraina, the Ostland, the Civilverwaltung, the Militärverwaltunggebiet, a lot of the fighting was still going on. Smolensk, Vitesk, Charkov, uh, Rostov, all of the military revolting areas were fighting with still seesawing back and forth. Ah. Yeah, but people uh, not taken into consideration when, when the war started and, and uh, Germany invaded Poland um, to today's conditions, they were already in Poland because uh, the German east border was not too far away from Krakow and Warsaw, mm -hmm. which are now two Polish cities uh, 
far to the east of, uh, of Poland. Yeah. So it was a very short way uh, to, uh, to get to Russia. Can't see what that says, my, again, my glasses. One thing for the, sure, this place could certainly use some better lighting. Oh, there's a woman, she has to wade through a river uh, because the people, the military thinks that there are mines. Mm -hmm. So by having her going through it, uh, they can discover it in this way. Hypothermia, experiments in hypothermia. Yeah. And those pictures of the Germans, they were of very good quality because Leica, they, uh, they produced especially uh, uh, those cameras uh -huh. for the Wehrmacht. You can still, uh, of course, buy them and they're quite uh, valuable. Um, I don't know that they specifically uh, made cameras for the Wehrmacht. That's news to me. Yeah, huh, they, really? They did, they did. Okay. I've seen them. And Leica was uh, very much uh, ahead of uh, that time, or, or, or say, spearheading the development of, of objectives and the DR, whatever. So here again, you've got uh, another little room, collaboration, the situation in the, in the camps, which are pretty much also like death camps. <clears throat> People dying, lots of uh, pictures with bodies. Lots of pictures with uh, dead people, but yeah, that's a war. Soviet POWs scrambling for food. Soviet, bits of Soviet gear, inscribed names, numbers, a little bit of trench art. On another level, it's also very much uh, the representation of, of uh, an analog era. Mm -hmm. This uh, this cardboard uh, thing of uh, so this is this, this is, strip this is harrowing. This is this is a this is the graphic, I guess, for a Cyclone B container. Yeah, that's a strip that went that was uh, pasted to uh, the Cyclone B uh, container. But but you see they've, they've got the Prussian flag uh, mm. division, black, white, red. Uh, Tash Stabano. Mm. I don't know if uh, Stabano would be very happy to see this when he came here. When he comes here and sees his yeah. own name on uh, Cyclone Bay, Degesh. Degesh, the sister company or the, the daughter company of IG Farben. Mm -hmm. And that company caused a very uh, big scandal when they were building the Holocaust monument. Yeah. Because the anti graffiti substance that was coating those blocks was made by Degas. Really? Yeah, and here you see Degas and Cyclone on one uh, label. But uh, that pissed a few people off. See these that's that's what, what, what I said from the, 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 the analog thing, you know, the, the books, how they were made, and these uh, insignias, how they were made. And this must be some kind of handwork also. You guys check this out over here. Here's also a section on collaboration. Um, these, look like, these look like Bevo uh, made patches. These are factory embroidered. That's why they're mm -hmm. so uh, actually uh, exact and tidy looking. Yeah. The Russian Liberation Army had this, uh, this designation here. The, was it St. Stephen or St. Andrew? The blue X on the white field. Yeah. The old Russian Imperial uh, flag. Here we have the Estonian. Uh, sleeve shield on the back, Azerbaijani, yeah. Georgian. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then here we have the second class uh, East People's Merit Medal, right here. Yeah. Also here, type machine, handwritten, mm. stamps, boom, 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 all things that have come under some people's hands. And, uh, a world that is slowly disappearing from our present day. <laughs> well, this is only the third or the fourth room, and there's more rooms uh, to visit, and you really risk to lose yourself in details of uh, what the ladies wore with the uh, boots, and what the men wore with the medals, and the helmets, and the uh, hats, more medals, the Germans and the Russians, representation of a battlefield in winter. And here the ammunition and uh, machine guns on wheels, machine guns on tripods, big bullets that look like bombs. This is the MG42, an absolutely insane rate of fire, this thing. It would cook out the barrel so quickly that you could basically pull that lever right there that would eject the burnt out barrel out the side. And you could basically undercover, dip the gun down, and with your head down, basically slide a whole new barrel in there, slam the side shut, clip it, and just keep firing, firing, firing. The Russians called them Hitler saws. Uh -huh. uh, I, I, it might be somewhat exaggerated, but I've heard they could actually shoot if you actually had to. Um, about 2,000 rounds a minute. That might be absolutely Whoa. exaggerated. 2,000 a minute 1,500 rounds a minute. I heard many, 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 many. It's rate Whoa. of fire is absolutely insane. Um, Don't quote me on that. So here's a, here's a grand example of bombast. Um, in German it says, Der Führer schätzt die Aktion von etwa vier Monate. Ich schätze auf weniger. Der Bolschewismus wird wie ein Kartenhaus zusammenbrechen. Wir stehen vor einem Siegeszug ohne Gleichen. Yeah. The Führer thinks the whole operation will be over in four months. I think it will be over in way less than that. Um, um, Bolschewism is like a, um, a house of cards that's just uh, falling apart. We are basically on the verge of a victory without comparison. And there it says it's an excerpt from Joseph, Joseph Goebbels' um, diary on the eve of the, on the eve of the imminent invasion of the Soviet Union. This, however, this entry is from June 16th, 1941. Bolshevism will collapse like a house of cards. We are on the brink of an unparalleled triumph. This is so bombastic, man. And of course, it, you know, these guys never had contingency plans. There was never a plan B, yeah? Everything would just sort of work. Yeah. And if there were glitches, then Germanness would compensate for them and just handle them. Yeah? That's basically how they thought. What we do, we take the full blow and we also uh, move to uh, the basement. Yeah, I want to. I really, I think in the basement is where this diorama setup is. Oh, okay. So I definitely wanted to, definitely wanted to save time for that. Um, I hope they still have it. Yeah, now we are in the basement, and what we put in the basements, the dead, the graves. Uh, I think the, the, the people who got lost 
Oh no, the the one who got uh, bodily uh, handicapped by the war, who who lost their arms or legs. We got memory of uh, anti-fascist time. You can listen here to uh, a record with uh, thank you, you uh, Soviet soldiers. People after the war who got to leave their countries, like in Switzerland and the east of Poland. We've got statues to remember of the victory. We got uh, things that people got their money back because they lost property in the war or they lost uh, part of their life in the war. We've like got, uh, the American con- flag with the Jewish stars in it. Convictions at the Nuremberg. Uh, trials. We've got people who come back and this is shown like a small little suitcase that people have with a a form filled in with the names or whatever. We've got cards that people uh, use to uh, carry their possessions back home. The denazification, the compensation, as you were saying. So this is all after the the war and it's also like uh, the deposit where some of the easy chairs are stored. You know what? I, I think they actually got rid of that diorama thing. Yeah. Shoot. That was so nuts. That oh. was so nuts. Yeah. And I don't know if you ever went to the Imperial War Museum as a kid, but they had a, a World War I trench mock-up. Do you remember that? This is, of course, the most sinister part of the exhibition. Okay, should we go outside? Yep. yep. While well, we still have some light. Nice. Vielen Dank, Wiedersehen. Vielen Dank. For your information, on May 8th, or I guess maybe for the local Russian community, it's May 9th, um, the community sets up a party here. And this parking lot over here is full of all kinds of information tents, as well as many exhibits. Uh-huh. Uh, there are vendors, there's food. It extends all the way back here on the grass. There's lots of dancing. It goes without saying, there's lots of drinking. And it's really fun. And it generally goes into the night. They have lots of traditional music. They have lots of traditional dancing. Um, and then in the evening, there's like hip hop and rock and stuff okay. like that. Yeah, it, but it's pretty fun. Um, I was out here for the 75th and it's hard to believe right now, I mean, especially this time of year with everything looking so barren and the streets completely empty, but I just had a hard time just even walking down the street, even getting here. Oh, wow. And there were all kinds of families. There were families here from Russia as well, too, and they had their kids dressed up in, like, period Red Army uniforms, oh, and it was, <laughs> it was pretty interesting. But anyways, check this out over here. We, we are now outside of the Museum Berlin uh, Karlshorst. Uh, I kind of like the portico because it looks like the brutalist structures in, the, in, in, in Calabria where, with all the unfinished buildings. Um, and we look into a street with, uh, with, with very modest villas uh, on, on the left and, and the right. It's already countryside here. I have to believe that we are in Berlin. And uh, right at the beginning, Jason was talking about this uh, military academy and that's... Uh, what is uh, on the left side of it, the bigger uh, buildings that we know so well from uh, Berlin, with uh, a more modernist uh, building in the, in the middle of it, which looks uh, rather nice, o- almost uh, yeah, very Bauhausian.
It's a late war T-34 here. T-34 is, it's sort of like the, one of the poster tanks of the Second World War. Um, some people even consider it to be the best tank of the Third World War, uh, Second World War. Excuse me, geez Louise. Um, it was fast. It was maneuverable. It could function pretty much in any kind of weather, under any conditions. They were relatively cheap. They were easy to make. That's not to say that they didn't have their drawbacks. One of the initial problems with these things at the very, very beginning is the turret was way too small. We'd have two guys in there trying to um, um, operate a gun in the small battle compartment. Uh, they couldn't get half as many rounds off in the course of two minutes that a German crew could get off in their tank. Uh, a situation like that would make them highly vulnerable. Um, the engine and the transmission weren't without their problems, but because they were so easy to make and they were so cheap to make, you could make so many of them that that in some way compensated for all of that. It was referred to as a medium tank. Oh, there's some uh, red marble from the Hitler's uh, Reichskanzlei. From, from the Kanzlei, probably, huh? Yeah. Don't tell anyone. So you guys, you can, hear, you can see sections back here of the old barracks. Oh God, there's more text. A piece of the Berlin Wall with a naive painting on it of... Uh, but it was painted by kids in 2016. And then here is uh, all kinds of uh, installation that looks like kites, but they are not kites. They are like canvas, again, with lots of pictures on it. Pictures, text, text, pictures. And it becomes all very educational. Uh, and I'm getting very close to an overkill. That's the thing that I don't like about museums. There's too much. If, if you really want to get into it, then I guess you have to uh, rent an apartment here for a month and then go in it every day. And then you can once again have uh, information of the farm yards, the conditions of living, uh, how the people were fed in the, in the lagers, Evangeline River. the life in the lager, industry, all of these little chapters that you can uh, come up with if you want to discuss or study the war and the impact it had on life as it was proceeding and as it was interrupted and disrupted. And because the 20th century was also the age of, his, of the technical reproduction, where the technical reproduction uh, was uh, possible, there's a lot of documentation. There's really a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And the funny thing uh, of, of this documentation is that it, it, they show people they show people in circumstances back then, they show people in, uh, in houses, street scenes, and the perception of Berlin itself, as it is now, it also uh, kind of, 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 of morphs into this historical uh, entity that, that you can imagine people living then in Berlin, people uh, walking the streets then in Berlin, and what they looked like, and. Uh, what uh, times were laying ahead of them. Wow. Hard to imagine, eh? 
because now if, if you look at these people and how people are presented now, what, what the kids look now, yeah. and, and uh, the fashion and, and now, because they all look a little bit restrained, as if they they are suffering or have suffered. And, and none of this is, is uh, in, in our... I just think they all look like mini adults. Yeah, I mean, yeah. here, it, this, this girl is 19, she looks like she's 35. Yeah, yeah. but you, that, that was the time then. At, at 16 or 17, you looked like an adult. For composure. And, and, and that was what you looked How like she dresses. Uh, until you died. Yeah. But now in, in, this, uh, in the Western world, well, everywhere where there's money and food and, and, a, and an iPhone, People just look good and healthy and happy, as long as they got the cameras pointed on them. So here we have a big collection of Soviet armor. This is what I used to play with when I was a kid. Second World and then War. You, and then in the tanks you could put the uh, matches and you could shoot the matches. Tuck, tuck. Really? Yeah. We never had that. Shooting matches? Huh. Well, whatever, you, as a stick you put into these, uh, how do you call them? Uh, the barrels. Whatever you put in the barrels, and, and then there was some kind of... Uh, uh, like a little, like a, I know, it's a little wire you can click back and then shoot it. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy, crazy, crazy. You know, like you can shoot bell points <laughs> from the other side if you open them. Yeah. So this is an IS-2. Uh, look how thick the armor is on this thing. On the manlet right there. Uh, Renus? What? How thick would you say the armor is here on this manlet? 20 centimeters something. Wow. Yeah? Uh-huh. Well, but it has to come out there, of course. So this is more like, uh, I would say 15. 122 millimeter gun on it. Oh, okay. So I was uh, 28 millimeter short. So this particular tank was here in 45. Yeah, I guess they were all here in 45. And this was, of course, for the Stalin organs. If you have to make a picture, we should do it here, because uh, this has to do with sound. This is what you see in uh, very much in uh, movies that were shot in, in the night of, of uh, when, when they went to Berlin. Then in, in the very dark, you, you saw these flashes of light, shush, 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 but also with the sound that came, it was a And that's why they call Stalin organs. You guys want to see something a little bit creepy? Creepy. So you can see where this thing was probably knocked out once okay. by a German 75 or an 88 millimeter round right oh, there. I think? It says it was damaged at least once uh -huh. during the course of the war. That's probably where it was uh, hit and penetrated, right there. Oh uh, yeah. Wow. Either by a 75 or a German 88 millimeter round. Crazy. Well, uh, dear listener, you have uh, been, uh, or we have been leading you through uh, the Berlin uh, museum in Karlshorst of uh, the German-Russian uh, yeah, war and size of the war. We uh, thank you for having been with us and I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, this is the end uh, with uh, Jason Honey, uh, one leading voice and me, Dennis van Aardebeek, also another leading voice and Adrian Shepard doing all the techniques and the very difficult job of editing all this together so this will uh, sound like a very fluent reportage to you. Thanks and goodbye.
been listening to the historical series on Radio One with Renus van Alabic and Jason Oney, with music by Ken Shaking and Tescard. This was a Radio One Berlin production.